It is my personal opinion that Cass Harrington is one of the best reporters in Asheville. A Kentucky native, Cass worked at NPR stations in Illinois and Indiana, where she won a prestigious Edward R. Murrow Award before moving to Asheville to work at Blue Ridge Public Radio a year ago. But Cass isn't just the host of Morning Edition for our local NPR affiliate. I first stumbled onto her work through the podcast Skillet. She's the co-host of Jim Nathan Orris's incredible interview series that chronicles food cultures throughout the Southeast by cooking with the keepers of those traditions. Cass's BPR stories also lean heavily into that food policy and food chain bent of things, subjects I tend to pay a lot of attention to, for obvious reasons. So I often find myself looking to her stories for accurate and in-depth information on local food communities. And because she's fluent in Spanish, she's able to get a lot of stories from immigrant communities in Western North Carolina, which is what her latest story is about. Just three days ago, Tyson Meats published a statement declaring that the food chain is breaking. That coming on the heels of 13 meat production facilities closing shop due to outbreaks of COVID-19 within their ranks. Cass reports on immigration labor, a lot of which revolves around local farms in western North Carolina. And she sees that the working conditions for many of these workers aren't exactly safe in times of a pandemic. From Dirty Spoon Media, you're listening to Home Fried, stories to keep you informed and entertained during the coronavirus lockdown. I'm Jonathan Ammons. And today, it's my conversation with BPR's Cass Harrington. Yeah, well, coronavirus has been very... I mean, it's been weird for everybody, but my coronavirus story had no transition. I mean... I had a, a trip to Mexico. Yeah, you were out of the country. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, and so the the week before I left, conversations in the newsroom were as more cases were rising in China. And, you know, the discussions were, oh, you know, we should be more worried about the flu here. This isn't, this isn't going to impact our local reporting. And right. while I'm in Mexico, I was in places where I had little or no phone service. So... And I was trying to just disconnect. Um, So once I got back, it was a very different story. I mean, I was greeted at the airport with people in masks and someone pointed a laser at my forehead to take my temperature. So it felt like just stepping into a sci-fi movie. Wow. Um, So immediately I was quarantined for two weeks. So I was off air for three weeks. Um, so I wasn't allowed to go to the studio and host the morning news. So I spent my days just writing about the virus that kept me quarantined. <laughs> and like many reporters, that's now taken over my days. You know, that's it's it's very strange. It, I'm a person who thrives on structure, and yet my days are there is no structure. It's constantly waiting for a source to re- return your phone call or you know, chasing whatever fire needs to be put out for the day. So, yeah. Has that been really difficult trying to chase stories from quarantine? I can imagine because you can't go chase a source. You have to wait to the source for the source to come to you. Right. Right. Well, and also the, (laughs) it's almost like an existential question I find myself facing every day is, is this thread worth my time and the public's time? Like this is, this is such a huge, enormous issue that's going to impact 
generations. And and I'm always like, I want to make some kind of meaningful impact or shine a light where it needs to be shown. And, um, you know, starting out my day, I'm like, what, what, what needs to be covered? And sometimes that's something serious. Um, you know, I did a story this past week about, uh, domestic violence, uh, or sometimes that that's me preserving my energy and chasing what are people ordering for takeout? Cause you know, I have to keep it light too. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think that's also, you know, preserving the public sanity. Like we, we need some palate cleansers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you judge what constitutes a story of impact, like a significant story worth chasing that lead? Hmm. My bent, uh, typically I cover race and immigration. And so I'm acutely sensitive to the disparities in this community. And now the virus has made them even more present. I mean, um, this is going to phenomenally hurt those who were already hurting and experiencing trauma. Um, Just because of my sensitivities toward that that news angle. I mean, that's, that's my compass that I'm constantly pointing toward. Um, but also I just listen into what people are talking about. And so I say that with the disclaimer to anybody who talks to me, be careful what you say, because sometimes it turns into a story um, <laughs> because I don't, you know, I don't pretend to know all the questions because, you know, I, I end every interview asking what, what else should I ask? <laughs> Yeah, that's so. that's my usual ending question is, is there anything I'm just too ignorant to know to ask? <laughs> how, could, how could we? So. Yeah, I guess let's uh let's dive into to what you've been working on lately. What's what are the the big stories that that we need to know about in this community that yeah. maybe aren't getting the light that they need to get? Well, certainly um so I've been at BPR full time for a year. And during that time, I've committed probably about 80% of my coverage to covering immigration. And um, it's lonely out here. Please, reporters, if you're listening, like, let's let's all let's all do this work together. Um, because North Carolina has a very large Latinx population and very minimal representation in newsrooms. To to be quite frank, as well. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. another. That, um, is worth worth unpacking. Um, but so anyway, all of that to say, this quarantining, this staying at home, everyone is acutely aware of where their food comes from. You know, we're we're we are very conscientious right now about going to the grocery store and about our our food supply. You know, just walk through the baking aisle, and you might may find one bag of flour. Um, produce as well. And so now we're thinking about the food chain a little bit more because things seem to be um, uh, less plentiful <laughs> or, you know, the which isn't the case. There is no scarcity, but um, I right. think the fear that we're in, you know, I'm not answering your question. Um, coming back to immigration, um, our reliance on migrant workers is part of our, our food system. And so, um, yeah, that's something that that I've been covering. And those who do outreach with the migrant worker population, uh, medical outreach in particular, are very concerned because social distancing is not an option for many folks 
who come here temporarily to work a harvest. They're living in temporary housing situations, small cabins, trailers, often sharing a room with 10 bunk beds. Um, and so they're, they're at even more risk. And you know, without, without the social net, the social support that, that Americans get. So. Yeah. Is there, um, I mean, how does that look locally? How does that look locally? Um, I mean, just, just like I described. So, um, you know, we're, we're getting into the harvest season. And so if you're in Western North Carolina in the mountains, um, you know, if you visit a migrant workers camp, it, I've seen, um, cabins or apartments. Sometimes there's motels, an entire floor of a motel has been rented out for seasonal workers. And, um, you know, it's the nonprofits in the region are doing the best they can to, to get out the information, to supply masks and protective gear. But, um, you know, if, if you came to this country, you know, even, even on a worker's visa, that process alone is such a pain and you are here with the pressure to provide for your family, you're going to show up to your job, even if you're feeling lousy. Yeah. So, um, and, and just this week we've, we've been seeing that play out in, in the state's food processing, like meat packing plants, five plants were shut down this week. Um, and so that's, that's going to have an immediate impact once, once, you and I go to the grocery store and we, and we want to buy some ground beef, you know, with the, it's going to affect the price if some of those suppliers are, are out of the game. Um, so for the first time in a while, it feels like these conversations are coming to the fore because it has immediate impact on the people who go to the grocery store. It's more, it's more apparent. Um, but those conversations need to keep happening. Yeah. Kind of astounding how the people we talked about the least are now essential workers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they're not getting paid any better. They're not getting any other help, but they are now considered essential to our economy. Essential, and yet also some of them are at risk of deportation, uh, essential. And yet they don't get healthcare benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are, these are things that are, that are coming to light and yet it's a conversation that our country has been unpacking <laughs> or ignoring for a century, more than a century. Um, if you think about, uh, do you read, did you read the jungle in back in high school? Up oh, yeah. In Sinclair? yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, those were Im- Irish immigrants in Chicago's meatpacking plant and Upton Sinclair was exposing their working conditions that were horrid and it led to the creation of the FDA, but you know, it took, it took some public, uh, interest and pressure, um, but, and, and we all love food. So that, that's going to make us care maybe a little bit more. We all need food. <laughs> yeah. One, one would hope <laughs> that we would <laughs> actually care. I mean, I know there's going to be people that say too, though, that that's, that's immigrant labor taking up American jobs. And, uh, how would you respond to that? Well, I mean, just any farmer that you ask, they'll say, an American isn't going to do this job. And we're already seeing that in Georgia. Um, uh, about a month ago, the Trump administration capped the number of 2A um, uh, agriculture worker visas from Mexico. And so, you know, harvests in Georgia, Georgia were shorthanded and we saw produce dying in the fields from just rotting in the fields. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is these jobs you know, don't pay. They are some of our least paid jobs in the country. And again, without benefits. Yeah. And it's, 
you know, it's dignified work. I mean, I've, I, I know people in our community who their parents were migrant farm workers and, and their kids went off to college and are, some are working in our hospitals right now, tending to this, you know, the, this virus. Yeah. So, yeah. I wonder if you could talk a bit too about how, just on questions of like how the media, and I use air quotes there, using the, the dick fingers air quotes. <laughs> like, I wonder how you could uh, address how like the media covers stories like this, because I think what a lot of people don't understand is that like you're actually talking to people in the field. Typically, it's a bit of, it's a bit different now because you're you're isolated and, and can't get as in the field as you might like. Although I don't know, you might be doing that. I, I don't know how you're how you're reporting. Um, well, I have to give a nod to my boss, the news director, Matt Bush. He put his microphone on a golf club. I think that's genius. I don't own any golf clubs, uh, so I need to have my work. <laughs> I mean, a shotgun uh, mic can get a good bit of distance. I've been doing that myself, just driving around in the car and poking the microphone out the window and being like, hey, tell me about how things are going. <laughs> and that's that's what's hard for me. Is like I'm a very – in my Kentucky culture where I grew up, we are – we are huggers. We are like no personal space folks. And so I'm, I'm used to the proximity of people in my communication style. So right. being, at a, being at a distance is weird. So doing all my interviews over the phone is costing me like, how do I make this into a narrative, you know, without, you know, the sound or the really human perspective. Um, um, you know, if, I, if I'm out in the field and I'm doing a story on seasonal farm workers, I make sure to talk to one or two or three or more to personify the story I'm covering because we all re- relate better to, to human beings. Um, but now this social distancing makes it so that I'm not really there talking to those individuals. I'm maybe talking to the outreach worker who's going to go visit them or just got back from a visit. So it's it, it lacks that. Yeah. How are you trying to get around that? Are are you finding ways to to get a little closer to the source despite the distance or well, I mean te- technology's great. We've got Facebook and WhatsApp. Um but it's it's yeah, it's still hard. I can't, can't physically be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that a company rule or is that a personal decision to to distance? Uh yeah, it's I mean personal but also um out of respect for a lot of these organizations too they're being super cautious yeah yeah we're at the point now where like seeing the meat packing industries like i mean tyson made a statement the other day that the food system is broken mm-hmm. um there's it's only a matter of time because of the way that those systems work that that starts to affect our vegetables, our, our, you know, produce. I, I think it starts first with a sheer acknowledgement of fact. Um, in my previous job, I was reporting in central Illinois and, 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 and this, this speaks to the politics that we're in, um, where farm owners there, the big, uh, crop was pumpkin Libby's, pumpkin which goes into pumpkin pie during the holidays their their canning facilities in central illinois and all the farmers surrounding that facility 
rely on migrant work, um, migrant workers for their harvest. Um, and yet it was incredibly difficult to find one of those farm owners to go on the microphone and talk about that because they feared being estranged from their next door neighbor or the person they go to church with. It was a political statement for them, even though it was a sheer fact of their financial situation of their family business. So I think acknowledgement of fact is first. And then also a discussion of, okay, how, how do we um, protect this, this workforce that brings food to our tables and, and keeps this country functioning, keeps our agricultural system uh, solvent. Um, and I, I read a study, I don't have a, the source on me, so don't quote me, <laughs> Vague, <laughs> that, that merely raising um, the hourly wage or instead of the picking rate, uh, but to a livable wage for a migrant farm worker would cost the average consumer about $16 a year. Um, I oh think if we, if we had a better understanding of, of how that would impact lives, um, I think people, most people would be willing to make that, that small adjustment. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a drop in the bucket, you know? Yeah. For most people. Yeah. I, I, could you speak to the, those conditions a little bit? Because I know like we've had, a, we have Smithfield meets in in North Carolina, which has constantly been under investigation for the way that the the employees have been treated. It's mostly migrant workers. Um, they have been under multiple investigations for, for abusive employees. A body went missing at one point a couple years ago. I remember a whole story about that, and they think it got processed into the meat. There was They were shut down for a while over it. There's been constant chaos, but I, I think that, you know, we think about some of those conditions in meat processing places, but I don't think we necessarily think about those in just the people that pick your vegetables. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I'm not familiar, I'm not familiar so much with the meat packing, but, but here definitely the cultivation of our vegetables and our Christmas trees and tobacco. And it's just the sheer physical labor <laughs> And the increased risk of, you know, if you're in tobacco to, to green tobacco sickness, which is why you see folks harvesting tobacco with long sleeves and sometimes their mouths and their heads are covered. Um, Explain that a little more. Go, in, go into that. Tobacco sickness. So when tobacco leaves are, are wet um, and you're harvesting, it can, your, your skin can absorb the tobacco and make you physically ill. I did not realize that. <laughs> Yes. Whoa. Yeah, it's a it's a disgusting feeling. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I've I've smoked too many cigarettes before. I know that feeling. I can't imagine it seeping in through the skin. Ooh. Yeah. Um. So there's that. There's there's heat. There's you know, twelve to fifteen hours in, under the July sun. Um, and but no complaints. <laughs> they're they're they do the work and. And then they go home and feed their families or, you know, start a business of their own. Um, but with little acknowledgement from the public. Yeah. And even, in, and, you know, you spoke earlier about the living conditions for a lot of these of splitting hotels or, or encampments or however they structure the living quarters for, for folks. There's not a lot of ways to avoid a pandemic 
when you're rooming with a stranger. I was thinking about the other that the other day. Like I have roommates, and you know, I can go off and do what I want during the day. They can go off and do what they want, and you really have no control over the interactions. You're you're exposing each other to whatever you exposed yourself to, Mm -hmm. and when you're rooming with a stranger for work and that's your livelihood, there's no other, you don't, that's so little control over your own life and over your own well-being. Right. Well, and I, I just keep going back to, if you have traveled thousands of miles for a job, you're going to do the job. Yeah. Fear of, of catching a, a virus or not, you're going to show up to your job period. Um, you know, um, in the times I, I went with the organization Vecinos um, that does uh, migrant healthcare outreach in Western North Carolina. And uh, they don't, don't often on their first outreach visit hear workers complaining, I hurt here, this hurts, I'm, t-, you know, having heart palpitations because they're afraid that their employer is going to find out and think they're a bad worker and kick them right off the farm. Yeah. So, you know, the, <laughs> just see, just from seeing that alone, it, it's, I, I think, you know, wanting to do the job, that's, that's a factor. Yeah. What can people that want to get involved or help migrant workers do? Are there organizations that people can reach out to that are lobbying for rights or that are, that are advocating or providing care for people in this community? There's lobbyists everywhere. Jonathan. Of course there are lobbyists everywhere. I, I will say, you know, the, the organizations in Western North Carolina that do outreach are always looking for, for don- donations. I know Vecinos, Blue Ridge Health in Hendersonville, um, you know, they collect long sleeve shirts for, for like what I mentioned, the green tobacco poisoning, drink, green tobacco sickness, or gloves for the Christmas tree harvest because those pine needles can prick your hands. Also, harvesting tomatoes can make your hands turn black. <laughs> hmm. um, that, that exterior on the, the leaf. Um, so protective clothing. Um, I know Vecinos, they also provide hygiene kits when they do outreach. So toothbrushes and hand soap and right now hand sanitizer, face masks. So it's a lot of resources at this point, um, but you can always reach out to organizations. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, I mean, I first got introduced to you, well, through your work at BPR, but also as a co-host for Skillet. And uh, I know that you weren't a food writer or weren't covering food previously journalistically before mm-hmm. that, correct? I mean, not as like a focus. Uh, yeah. The food, food has a way of crisscrossing into so many topics, public health, um, the economy, politics. So, you know, I've always written about food. Um, I love to eat. I actually considered culinary school before deciding to be a journalist. Really? Yeah, I'd never, you know, never. I mean, you'll make <laughs> as little money at either career <laughs> in the long run, but. Because I'm not a night owl. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how's that? I mean, I've, I've noticed just listening to your stories that you do 
lean a lot more into the the food system side of things. Like, how has that evolved, and did did that change because of Skillet? Like, how did that affect? How did working with Skillet affect the way that you approached your work hmm. overall journalistically? That's a good question. It's a great. That was a Terry Gross question. Um, <laughs> You know, what Skillet did, and I credit Jen for this, um, is it made me even more acutely aware of the emotional and personal identity aspect of food. Because when we were in the process of interviewing someone while they were cooking, they went to this deeply meditative place. Like you could Mm. see them memories or they would answer questions more frankly or offer up some more vulnerability because they were already exposing themselves in the the process of cooking because that's what we do when we taste food and smell food especially if we're cooking something that we grew up on which a lot of our guests were doing um you're walking right into their like living room with the shoes off so I think about that now if I'm, I'm talking to a chef or a restaurateur to kind of disarm them a little bit. <laughs> and um, so that's, I think that that's what Skillet did for me. So thanks, Jen. <laughs> yeah. And I was also wondering how it approaches the way, how spending that time with people and learning how they prepare foods affects the way you approach food in your own home and how you approach the food that you consume yourself. This was really interesting. As we were taping the first season of Skillet, most of the recipes or recipes that came up in conversation involved some form of bean and rice. And, you know, we talked to folks from, you know, Asheville, Peru, Mexico. And to me, that spoke to our connectedness. I mean, and a lot of food here that's considered Southern really is from Africa. And right. I, think of, I just think about that all the time when I'm in my own kitchen. If, um, for instance, I mean, if you were to ask me right now what food I most identify with as a girl who grew up in Kentucky, I'm going to tell you Lebanese food. <laughs> My, my next door neighbor was Lebanese. She taught me how to cook. My godmother is Lebanese. And so I think about, I think about that. Like as, as human beings, we're, we're constantly in movement and we're constantly sharing and, and feeding one another and influencing one another. Wow. I think, we're, I think we're, I've, I've taken up more than I, I said I would of your time. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And, and I know you're... you're You've got to be super busy right now in the midst of all this, just chasing leads and chasing stories. But I appreciate you taking the time to to sit down and talk and keep us up to date on what's going on. And uh, good, good to get to know the dirty spoon. Yeah, I know. I've been wanting to have you on here forever. I'm I'm, I'm glad it finally happened. But uh, yeah, I mean, stay safe out there and uh, keep us in the loop with your stories. I do. Cool. Cheers. Cass Harrington is a reporter for Blue Ridge Public Radio and the host of Morning Edition. You can hear her every morning on any of the BPR affiliate stations or head on over to BPR.org. 
Home Fried is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I produce the show, and I write and record our interstitial music. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, manages our website and marketing, and keeps the engines purring around here. To catch the latest episode of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, be sure to tune in to 103.7 WPVM the first Friday of every month at 5 p.m. You can also catch up on back episodes of the show, stream any of our podcasts, check out the artwork from our contributing artists, or support us through our Patreon at our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. We'll be back with new episodes of Home Fried every Tuesday and Thursday, with occasional episodes on Saturdays. To subscribe, just search for The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume on The Dirty Spoon. Stay safe.